Sarah. Hi, Allison. So um, here's something interesting. Macron, the French president, has COVID. Oh, dear. Uh, bad news. And this comes just three days after lockdown was eased here in France. I wonder where he caught it. Because mm. the, the latest study says you're most likely to pick up the virus at home. So with your family members or when you're eating. Yeah, yeah, and he's certainly been having a lot of lunches with people recently. Um, and it really shows the difficulty of this period, of course. We have France that's loosening health measures, while most other countries in Europe are tightening up. Cases are not exactly going down here in France. Mm. But, of course, we have been released. Um, we are allowed to travel over the Christmas period. Um, Alison, are you going anywhere? I can't feasibly go back to the UK because of all this quarantine uh, business. But mm. um, I think I'll hang around Paris, maybe with a little trip to the Normandy coast to get some ah. sea air, to <laughs> ring in the changes, maybe just on Christmas Day. Most people I've spoken to are like, well, what's the point paying for a holiday uh, elsewhere if you can't eat out? Yeah, because uh, restaurants are still closed. Yeah, as we were reporting on last week. And so the traditional réveillon dinners on the 24th and the 31st, well, then they'll all be at home. Yeah, um, there's that rule of six, of course, six adults um, plus kids uh, under the age of 15 at, at family gatherings. But it's a, just a suggestion in France. And surveys show that not many people are actually going to be able to respect those limits or not planning to respect those limits. Um and in my own conversations, um, that seems to be the case. I mean, people will do it if, if that's how many people are in their family. But if there are more people in the family, well, there'll be more people at dinner. Which sort of prepares the way, at least for a possible third wave. Uh, but by which time they'll have started vaccinating, won't they? Well, yeah, maybe. Uh, the government does hope to start vaccinating elderly people in retirement homes at the beginning of January and then rolling out for the rest of us uh, at some point next year. Yeah, so they're expecting to get, I think, just over a million vaccines by the end of this year. One interesting thing is that the Prime Minister, Jean Castex, who now also is self-isolating, uh, mm, said just, just this case. week, yeah, said just this week that kids didn't have to go to school today, Thursday or tomorrow. Um, so that they can isolate themselves a full week ahead of meeting family members, uh, perhaps their, their grandparents, you know, over the Christmas period. But but kids aren't supposed to be big spreaders of this disease. Yeah, exactly. Does he? Maybe he knows something we don't. <laughs> it's, I must admit, it's all adding to the confusion. Set culture free. That's what these actors, directors and people in the culture world were chanting on protests this week because lockdown may be lifted, but a promised reopening of museums, theatres and cinemas on Tuesday has been delayed. And the culture sector, uh, which employs some 1.5 million people on and off, is very upset. Yeah, and there's no date for when all this will open, maybe mm. mid-January, depending on how co the COVID situation evolves. So arts workers say that what they're doing is food for the soul and that it's just as important as the food you have on your plate. So they really don't understand why shops, public transport, which, as we know, can get really busy, mm -hmm. are being allowed to open. Yeah, I, I guess I do see the argument. But then again, I mean, theaters and cinemas, these are enclosed spaces, um, good for spreading viruses. Um, mm. Honestly, I don't think I'd be going even if they were open. 
Yeah, you have a point. The thing that really upsets these people, though, is that places of worship have reopened, which in a secular country like France really gets on their nerves. To be fair, it wasn't the government's decision, though. Catholics took the case before France's Conseil d'État, or Council of State, which checks that measures abide by the Constitution, and it ruled that keeping churches, but also mosques and synagogues closed, was a breach, in fact, of the right to freedom of of worship. Hmm. Yeah, theatres, workers, actors, meanwhile, insist that they are providing a kind of secular communion. Now, not everyone was demonstrating this week. Some people chose to show their anger through art, like here at the Théâtre de l'Atelier near Montmartre in Paris. En chantant le télétravail, c'est la santé. Je mourrai bien un jour, pas ici, maintenant, plus tard. So the actors were expecting to reopen their show this week. So here they are singing a text in front of the theatre to highlight what they see as the government's incoherence. A lot of money is on the line because the show was shot just four days before it was due to reopen. The theatre's director, Marc Lesage, is angry. He says the government doesn't understand how the art sector works. It was really uh, awful to stop like this because the government has no vision about culture and how our theatre are really organised. It's impossible to work with a stop and go. It's really, really impossible to work like this because we have to sell tickets for our shows and to sell tickets it needs a lot of money to communicate and there is no vision on the long term and, and we are really patient. The profession is really uh, invested in this sanitary context. The health crisis. Yeah, and we were really careful with all the, uh, the, the preconditions. The measures, yeah. uh, we were really careful about that and the, the result of that, we are closed. People say, yes, but a closed space is dangerous. All the studies about that, there is no any cluster in the world, in the world, I speak about the world, no clusters in the theatre. So why would we have to close them? And it's a nonsense because during this time you have all the big supermarkets, you have all the, the trains, subways, they are full. The Prime Minister has announced they will maintain 35 million euros in a, a solidarity fund yeah. for the cultural sector, which, compared to a lot of countries in the world, does seem very generous. Can you really complain that you're being, you know, sort of threatened when there is this amount of money there? Of course it's really generous, of course. We are very lucky in France about the questions of money. The sector was really supported by the government. But it's not only a question of money, it's a question of mentality. How a government, how a state, can support culture and arts. How you can, you can say to all the people that culture is really necessary for all the people. It's the base of the society. And if we have in this base, we have nothing. Today, the market is more essential than culture. That's a reality.
So the government has come up with a bailout for the sector, as you said, 35 million euros. Um, they've given assurances to actors that they'll continue to get their Social Security benefits, despite not paying into the system very much this year. But as that director said, um, it's not all about money. No, they want to work. They want to connect with people, especially now uh, when there's this sense of being very disconnected because of the virus. The culture minister, Roslyn Bachelot, has said she's heartbroken over the situation and that she understands their suffering. She said uh, just this morning on the radio, no country does as much as France for its artists. But that isn't, you know, compassion isn't enough. I spoke to Anayel Gez. She's in her mid-30s, an actress, and she usually works a lot, especially at this time of the year. But this year, she's hardly worked at all. She's frozen. What hurts the most, she says, is that unlike shops and hairdressers, which are open, culture isn't considered essential to French society. When you say culture and theatre are not essential, you think that you are not essential. And it, this is the question after for the human. I'm an actress, this is my job, and I want to give a, a magical thing to children, to people. This is our job. So if I can't do that, if I'm not essential, what is the meaning of my life, you know? So for the, the lockdown, our play was postponed many times. So I spent my time to cross things out in my schedule. And it was just, ah, I'm going to do that for one year, seriously. And it's really sad to have nothing to do with what we are, you know? You had this period between the two lockdowns. Did you work a bit? Yeah, the tour uh, continued. It was great. I played seven times. It was joy, joy, joy. And uh, just um, one week after, beam. Everything stopped again. And it was like uh, a shock. So just recently, when the Prime Minister announced that this lockdown would be more or less lifted. Did you really expect that theatres would open again? Of course. You know, the, the period of Christmas, November, December, is a, a good period for theatre. So for my case, it's a puppet show, so this is for children. And we have many schools, many classes, who come and see the show. Mm. So this is really handy. Yeah, I was expecting they open the, the theatre again. So you said that your show has been postponed, but you still have bookings? We have almost 50 bookings that postpone, mm -hmm. but we don't know when. And with the contracts, is really hard because Seattle are afraid, so they don't sign contracts. Nobody is protecting, you know? Everything is from day to day. So, uh -huh. so given this level of insecurity, do you think you'll continue in this business? Yes, I will continue because what is the world without culture? It's nothing, you know. You can't live without that. So how does it make you feel when the government kind of sends out the message that it's not essential? I don't understand. I don't understand because in this period, I think that it's the most important thing. To be able to go to theatre, to be able to act, to bring children for Christmas, you know? I think it's more important to go to theatre, to go to cinema, than going shopping. I think that the society is crazy 
to imagine that uh, it's more important opening churches and not theater. I'm really confused, you know. Of course, the numbers in the churches are limited to yeah. 30. So what are you saying, that you should also have be able to have 30 people in a theater? Of course, we can play for 30 spectators. It's better than nothing. So you really are not concerned about the health risk of people going into a very closed space, like a theatre? Look at the tube, the subway. People are not, they're like moving through just for a short period of time. I, I know, I think it's, it's a lot of rubbish. You know, in churches you can uh, open the windows? Not sure. We have climatization on theatre, air conditioner, so... No, I think it's bullshit, really. They're treating us like an idiot. You can't open shops and not theater. You can't do that. By the way, Sarah, one of the main entertainment unions has appealed to the Conseil d'État to force the government to reopen theaters and cinemas. Kind of like uh, they did with churches. Yeah, and the decision is due to be rendered next Monday. Time to step back into history now uh, to the 18th century, the 17th of December, 1706, with the birth of the first woman in the world to devote herself to science, Émilie de Châtelet. And as the name suggests, she was French. Yep, uh, she was born Gabrielle Émilie Le Tonnelier de Breteuil, a mm. bit of a noble name there. Um, she became a renowned natural philosopher and mathematician. She's most famous for translating and commenting the Principia by the English physicist Isaac Newton, this on the basic laws of physics. So like the theory of universal gravity, for example. Newton also invented calculus, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Duchatelet made a big scientific contribution to Newton's work. Uh, she made it more accessible through her French translation, but she also augmented it with her own ideas on how energy is conserved. Her work helped shift France away from Cartesian physics towards Newtonian physics and therefore helped complete the scientific revolution in France. But she didn't live to see the publication of her work, did she? No, no. The translation and commentary were published after her death. Uh, she died due to complications during childbirth when she was just 42 years old. But it is still considered the standard French translation. Um, de Châtelet wrote also a philosophical opus called The Foundations of Physics, which was published in 1740. One of her key ideas was the need to verify knowledge through experience. And it was featured in the most famous text of the French Enlightenment, Diderot's Encyclopédie. She also wrote a critical analysis of the Bible, a dissertation on the nature and propagation of fire. Mm -hmm. She wrote about individual empowerment and the social contract. And she wrote about happiness, mainly from a woman's perspective. Oh, I must check that out. Uh, <laughs> so uh, clearly a very broad range of interests. Yeah, yeah. And somebody who challenged the patriarchal norms of the time. Right, because um, during that time, intelligence was thought of as the province of men, right? Women mm -hmm. weren't allowed to study, let alone work in maths or science. 
Yeah, yeah. She was the only girl of six children, and her parents actually encouraged her. She was very driven. She sought out the best mathematicians at the Académie des Sciences to help her and mentor her. Apparently, in the early 1730s, she would dress up as a man to go into Paris cafes to have intellectual discussions that were closed to women. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1738, she became the first woman to have a scientific paper published in the Académie des Sciences. And her personal life was quite colored as well. She had an affair with Voltaire. Yeah, yeah, but not just an affair. She was his mistress, but also a collaborator. I mean, he recognized her major contribution to his work when he ran into trouble with King Louis XV for publishing his philosophical letters. He left Paris, went to live in a ruined castle in the east of France, and de Châtelet went with him. They spent a decade together writing about philosophy and science and conducting scientific experiments. De Châtelet continued writing and experimenting to the very end. And she still commands huge respect in the scientific circles. Uh, she also has uh, some things named after her, like a minor planet and a crater on Venus. <laughs> So back to confinement now. Um, Alison, last week you brought up this idea of Blur's Day. Yeah, one of my favorite words. It evokes uh, total pandemic fatigue. Yeah, yeah. But how are we really doing uh, with these lockdowns and this pandemic? Um, remember back in April, we talked about a longitudinal study. Um, researchers had been talking to people for many years and actually started asking lockdown-specific questions. Yeah, and I remember at the time, the results showed that people were, in fact, surprisingly positive. Yeah, the, the first lockdown kind of was seen as a time for people to step away from their routine, reflect on life, um, spend some more time with their family. But now that has all changed. Um, there have been a couple of more surveys done since then, one this summer and one just now during the second lockdown. The lead researcher, Ettore Recci, a sociologist at Sciences Po, told me that the negative really is prevailing right now. Lockdown number two has been nerve-wracking. The prevailing frames are it's a nuisance, it's a nerve-wracking experience. I think there are two major drivers of this phenomenon. One driver is really fatigue, the fact that it's six months now that we are living with it. And, and the second factor is that this lockdown was apparently lighter than the first one, but in fact it was heavier because people had to go to work, and it was life as usual. You had the as the French say, the metro boulot dodo, so the commuting, the working, the sleeping, but you, without all the amenities that alleviate our routine. So there's no cinema, there's no theater, there's no bar, there's no restaurant. It's a society without a social life. Is it bearable? Not that much. Well, one, one big difference, I mean, this is coming from somebody, you know, with children. For me, a big difference was that the schools were open and the kids were in school, and that made a big difference. It's a very good point, because we had a question about how do you feel compared to the first lockdown, and, and the majority of people said worse or quite the same. Only 22% uh, said uh, slightly better or fairly better. But among these people who said, I feel better, uh, there is a, a large majority of women with children mm. because we also found that women uh, had to face higher uh, workload in childcare compared to men during the first lockdown. 
Obviously, there are lockdowns and there's, um, you know, COVID concerns all over the world. But I mean, are there specificities about how the French are approaching it? I think one other major thing is the lack of proper holidays. Holidays are such a central feature of a French lifestyle. Uh, and the lack of a perspective on when and where people can go on holiday, I think is very frustrating for the average French. Yeah, because there's a there's a lot of a lot of life is sort of structured around, yeah, like, okay, well, you might go to the mountains in the in the winter holidays, you might go to the beach in the summer, and then sort of planning that booking that ahead, anticipating it. Yeah, there's a lack of perspective, you cannot project yourself in space, let's go to the mountains, let's go to visit uh, our families in the south of France. And in time, because we don't know when everything will be over. And even the most recent measure, which is the curfew, uh, has been introduced without an end point. Yeah, the lockdown is over, but we can't leave the house between 8 p.m. and 6 a.m. And there's no, there's no end point. And this is very frustrating and psychologically, yeah, depressing. Um, another thing that deserves attention is a, a reduced amount of time spent on networking with uh, friends and family, uh, which is kind of surprising. I mean, there is a relaxation of the measures, of the restrictions, so we might expect that even though bars and restaurants are closed, people could get together more, but they don't. You mean in person, like going over to see each other's house or, or even meeting outside? But also at a distance. So less time online? Less time online, yes. And, and also a huge drop in contact with, with colleagues, which is a side effect of working at a distance. But I think there is some social relationship that are kind of dissolving. You mean like people kind of folding in on themselves and not reaching out to others? Exactly, yeah. You could say that's something that's pretty concerning in a society. It is. One of the reconforting findings of the first confinement is that people were getting closer to the neighbors, but this time around we don't see that. So how does this bode, what does this bode for, for French society moving forward? We should always hope that once the health conditions will improve, there could be a boost in well-being, enthusiasm, as we saw in June. Actually, in June, uh, our June survey recorded a peak in, in well-being that we had never uh, found any time before. I mean, they'd never been so happy. Even before COVID? Yeah, even from 2017 till now, the peak was June 2020. Post-lockdown euphoria of like, yay, we can go out, we can, we can go on holiday, we can enjoy the summer. Yeah. So we may hope that that will happen again uh, if, if everything unfolds as it should. How is the subjective well-being of the people who've had COVID versus the people who haven't? Uh, there's a significant difference. People who had COVID at any time uh, keep on lagging behind. In that they're not happy. Yeah. They have lower well-being, even though they had COVID five months ago. There is some sort of social psychological cost of, of having had COVID. It's interesting because you would imagine if you had it and you got through it and, and maybe you're relatively okay, that maybe it sort of boosts you and says, okay, I can get through this. But no, that's the opposite. Yeah. Well, I had it and I fear having it twice. And if you haven't had it, it seems still more abstract. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's the case. Also, people are having where the COVID cases in the family have lower levels of, of well-being.
Did you ask questions about the vaccine? There is another research group has been studying the potential reactions to to vaccine, and what they found actually this is a question I've been posed in different countries that apparently the French are the most reluctant in in Europe to get inoculated with vaccine. In general, the French are have been shown to be the most vaccine skeptical, though they do take their vaccines because it becomes required. So it'll be interesting to see what the government actually decides to do in terms of requiring or not. Exactly. Something I haven't mentioned, but it should be mentioned, is that now the preoccupations, the concerns for uh, the economic outcomes of these crises are overwhelming. Right, which makes sense because the fallout of everything being closed is is going to start being felt. No matter how much money the government throws at it, at some point, we need to face it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the economic situation did not collapse because of these Keynesian measures and and the huge uh, unemployment subsidies, which are quite generous. Some people are suffering, especially independent workers, but employees, there have not been massive layouts. But interestingly, it's, it's more the rich than the poor that are concerned. <laughs> I mean, the rich are maybe concerned who's going to pay the bill for all this. And the poorest social classes, and uh, as well as women, as well as the elderly, still uh, prioritize uh, health. And that's it for this show and for this year indeed. We're taking a few weeks off and we'll be back on January the 7th. Bonne année, bonne santé, messieurs, dames, voilà le nouvel an tout neuf. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. You can also find us on Instagram. It's Spotlight on France. And send your questions or comments to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. Spotlight on France is a production of the English service of Radio France International. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye, Alison. See you next year. See you next year, Sarah. Souhaitons que dans cent ans, on puisse comme à présent se redire de tout cœur tous nos meilleurs vœux de bonheur.